Kiki Ra, and you're listening to For the Listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves into the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or even game design. Joining Roger from Wow Dogs, and for the lore is Joe, writer for World of Maticus, and Enrique of Spooncraft. Hello and welcome to For the Lord. This is Roger coming to you on Monday, the 17th of May. If I sound a little excited, it's because we just had a most awesome interview with the fine folks from Terra. And that is going to be later on in the show, so you're going to want to make sure to be downloading the show and listening to that. For some of the week's news, however... Oh, by the way, I've got Joe and Vince. Pff, same as usual. Uh, some of the weeks... <laughs> barely at all. We don't need you. If I can have interviews like we just had, I don't need you, jackasses. Anyways, some of the important news that we got from this week has actually been from Guild Wars 2 at least to my knowledge, my opinion. I, I am a little biased because I absolutely adore Guild Wars, and I know that you guys are getting sold on it, but I'm assuming you guys read the new dev blog on Guild Wars 2 where they're talking about the flawed questing system and whatnot, correct? Yes, absolutely. See, to me, that is... As much as we're seeing a game like Terra, which is redefining MMOs, then in a completely separate vein, we're seeing a game like Guild Wars 2 redefining MMOs for questing and whatnot, wherein you're getting those dynamic quests, no walls of text, wherein you know what you have to do based on what you're seeing. If there's a dragon terrorizing a village, that means go kill the dragon. That, to me, is huge. And the yes. fact that those persistent changes are going to remain in your world as you're playing, that's pretty huge. And, yeah, I mean, and and I like the fact that they're openly talking about it. I, open, I like the fact that in their dev blogs we're seeing that um, an open discussion about the flaws. Because, I mean, it's too often you hear somebody talk about all the good stuff about the game, <coughs> but none of the flaws <laughs> on it. And it's nice to see the developer say, yes, we know there's a problem. We're looking to fix it. We're aware of it. Well, and again, to me, the big thing is that they're also talking heavily on making it so that the actions that you're taking, and this is a big one with us. We've, we keep talking about this over and over again. The actions that you're taking as you're playing have a huge impact on the game world. Now, that's a hard one when you're doing an MMO. With an RPG standalone, it's not as big a deal. However, with an R with a, an MMO where there's a, a, a persistent world for everyone, it's very hard to make a change wherein Quite, uh, like decisions that you've made along the way are going to have an impact throughout all of your gaming experience. That's huge. Vince? 
Well, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was. Uh, <laughs> the, the Stop talking. Here, you know, trying to help out our fans. Excuse me, but no, yeah, I think it's really cool how they're talking about how it's going to be dynamic, and you know, they they actually want to bring other players back into the game, and how they're really trying to focus it back around the community. They don't want you competing against your fellow players. They want you working with your fellow players. Yeah, that's again, and that's something where like they're talking about how they're trying to cater the game, not just to regular gamers, but as well to um, well, they're talking about explorers, people who just like to go off and explore every nook and cranny of the world, as well as the altaholic, which is, again, a very Western mentality. And if you're creating a world that is ever changing based on um what you're going to be doing in the game, then as the game is changing, you can keep exploring zones and it's going to be different. And then you can have an altaholic. You can have an alt that chooses completely different. See, this is where we're going into uh, Mass Effect 2 territory, where you can be the the, the, the Paragon or the, um, the Renegade, and then you have completely different playthroughs. But now you can do that on an MMO scale. That's huge. If they can pull it off, huge. Well, you see, that's the one thing I kept coming back to my mind as I was reading through it is if they can pull it off. Because as we know, Guild Wars is a free-to-play game. Whereas mm-hmm. in other MMOs, we pay that monthly fee. And you know we work under the assumption that, of course, profit is tied in. But that monthly fee also goes to creating new content and, and maintaining the servers. Now, the first Guild Wars got around that with basically almost everything being instanced. You know, okay, you had the towns where people could gather and you had the PvP areas. But outside of that, you were pretty much doing your own thing. And it wasn't that much of a stress on the servers. So I'm wondering really how it's going to physically work as well as how much of content we're actually going to see new as the game is going on if they don't have that subscription fee to really fund the new content generation i'm actually i'm not that worried about it sorry joel you can go in just one second i'm not that worried about that because having played guild wars enough and seeing the work that they've put into it it's and i and i could be again biased but i'm not worried about the content that's going to be introduced for them i'm quite certain that they'll introduce a lot of content and that it'll be well done regardless of the fact that they're not getting that monthly subscription fee and the way that they're talking it isn't going to be instanced like um guild wars one was now that being said because we've seen the technology developed with Wrath of the Lich King with the Death Knight instanced um, like starting area and whatnot. Because that's now been established in the, the MMO universe where you can have that kind of thing, then I think they open the floodgates where then someone like ArenaNet can develop entirely based on that so that you know, you're not going to be going to Westfall and seeing the same goddamn inn being built forever. <laughs> There's going to be a point where the inn is built. They're done. No more guys on the roof. And this is something that I'm really hoping we're going to see in Galore Sue. The only downside of that is going to be if you're in that world with someone in a party or whatever what are they seeing can you exist in the same world together you know that to me is the big hurdle well the the way they made it seem to me was that all of the dynamic content wasn't going to be necessarily your individual it was going to be the larger events that everybody was going to participate in i I was going to say i'm not too 
too terribly worried about it. Um, honestly, we've we've seen enough companies use uh, sort of the the, the separated instance with. Uh, with the players creating virtual worlds and I don't think there's going to be too much of a, a problem with it. And if anything, they've had enough time to learn from other companies mistakes where I think that they will be able to see where if you're joining somebody who's already progressed on a quest line and has certain areas available to them, uh, allowing the other person to uh, see those areas, uh, which we see the flaws right now, like in wow, uh, there's a section of ice crown where if you're not caught up, um, you could have one person on the quest, but if you're in your party, you're trying to help that person out. You can't see them as soon as they uh, breach a threshold. Uh, they can't assist you because they can't see the same mobs you see. Uh, I think that they, that arena net has had enough time to learn from those mistakes. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm definitely I have some faith in ArenaNet based upon what I've seen from them, but I, I just wanted to voice the concern out there. All Fair right, enough. before Joe has to go, let's talk about something that I know he's going to be very excited about: <laughs> the Mass Effect 2 DLC, The Overlord. We're going to be getting a new uh, planet as well as some new quests. Now, you are still, I'm assuming, you're still playing Mass Effect, correct? Yes, I'm on another playthrough. Um, just this one's a little more casual. It's whenever I have time, I'll I'll pop in, and this is pure soldier. So, right. Um, I'm actually. Go ahead. No, we're we're getting this other DLC that's going to be, by the sound of it, actually introducing quite a bit more for a whopping seven bucks. So it actually sounds pretty to goddamn cool. Well, and that's going to be. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how much depth is actually there. Like what they're talking about, it's going to be a series, an entire quest series um, based on a brand new planet. Um, we're not getting any new uh, team members, which is good. Because honestly, I don't want to have a new team member every time there's a damn DLC. Um, but it's, I'm interested to see what they do with it because they're talking about um, with the previous one, when they were talking about, um, there was hints of Terra, there was hints of, 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 Earth and old lore. I'm wondering if this is going to carry over with this this planet with the AI. I wonder if this is something we're going to see again. Um, so I'm curious to see how it works out, um, but I'm also cautiously optimistic because it's a it is a, a lot of information that they're saying they're going to jam in for seven dollars. Yeah, but uh, if you look back to the Hammerhead, to the um, uh, a lot of the DLC that they've introduced that's non-paid, they actually put a hell of a lot of content for nothing. So really, I have no doubt that they'll be able to actually do quite a bit here. And to me, this is, if there is enough content, this is payback for that goddamn $2 visor. That's what, <laughs> that's what this is. Now, I have a uh, feeling the $7 is really going to be worth it because, yeah, with the Hammerhead and Zaid and Kasumi, you know, we've seen small little, like, add-ons, as you were. This seems to me like to be the first thing they're introducing that's actually adding to the game world. It's adding story. It's adding depth to it. So at, at, for story reasons alone, it'd probably be worth 7 bucks. Definitely. Um, Joe, we're going to be letting you go, I guess, unless you have a very quick something to say about the advanced classes for Star Wars, the old War Republic. Yes, I do, actually. Real quick, um, I'm happy to see stuff like this. <laughs> I'm happy to see the diversification. We were talking about it earlier with the smuggler. 
Uh, we were talking about how Smuggler is going to be able to have a specialization that allows them to heal. And we're starting to see this now in actual black and white. We're starting to see this on, in ink. And that makes me excited because it allows for diversification between the different classes and for further specialization, uh, something that other MMOs should probably take a cue from. Uh, the advanced classes, while there may not be anything spectacularly new, is something that most people ignore, um, where you have a base class that can then specialize. We saw it implemented in Ion, um, but that didn't really go so well. Uh, and now we're going to see it in a company that I have a little more faith in, um, and something that I think we're going to see a better, a better polished version of in Star Wars, it's particularly with uh, the different flavors of each one's going to have. So, all right, cool. Go to your aid, brother, and we will Peace see out. you next week. Take it easy, Joe. All right, so just you and me, when this was announced with the advanced classes for Star Wars The Old Republic, what did you think? This made me very happy because the one concern I've had all through the development process was honestly the lack of classes. Like, yeah, okay, we have eight classes, but if you really look at it, it's, it's four classes with two different flavors of each. So now that we es essentially have eight classes it really makes me a little more excited about the dynamics of the gameplay. It's going to be offering quite a bit more in terms of your choices. You're going to have to think a little bit harder when you are going down a specific path. That is something that we saw more with Ion as well, where you're picking your class. However, you know that at X level, you're going to then have to branch out to specialize. So it gives you a little bit of time to get used to your class. And then at that point, Okay, now you're going to define what your class is going to be at end game, which has a huge impact because, again, going back to Ion, because, again, this kind of specialization is something that you see a lot more in Eastern games versus the the Western games. So when you're looking at Ion, if you were choosing, again, your healer class, when you chose to specify, you could either be the class that does great buffs and could be insanely dangerous in PvP or the best healer in the game. So if they are going to be going that black and white with each of the classes, the subclasses for the Old Republic, it's going to really change how your your decision in terms of who you want to be. Well, honestly, comparing it to Ion is a bit off because, as they said in Old Republic, you're going to be leveling as your Sith warrior, and then at a high level, you'll pick your specialization. Whereas with Ion, honestly, you picked your specialization before you even played the game because you only had to get to level 10. So, e e honestly, even calling it specializations is a bit weak because you basically you played as the basic class and then you got to your actual class and yeah later on you could customize it a bit but a ranger is still a ranger there's no there's no going back to assassin after level 10 so if you played 40 more levels as your ranger and you didn't like it well sorry buddy you got to start over whereas at least in old republic you'll be able to play through as we'll say the basic class for a good portion of the game and really get a good handle on it and then decide exactly how you want to specialize and those specialization specializations are going to have a huge impact, though, on the end game of the Old Republic. When they're talking about the specializations, right now they've only talked about the Sith Warrior, where you're going to be able to be either a Juggernaut, which is more of a damage-soaking class kind of thing, um, versus the, what is it, the Marauder, which is going to be more of a, what appears to be more a DPS kind of, they're calling it twin lightsaber fighting class um 
that's a pretty huge distinction. However, again, coming back from that wow mentality of a warrior who's either protection spec or arms or fury kind of thing. So it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. All right, let's move on from some Star Wars news and actually look at some Fable 3, which I know not everybody is interested in, but you know what? God damn it, he talks a good game, okay? (laughs) Because I'm looking at this and I keep thinking, well, I enjoyed a large portion of Fable 2. I wasn't as crazy about the combat because it was oversimplified. And, excuse me, the ending was a little too simple, but... The game up until then was fun, and he's selling it. He's doing such a good game, selling it. And John Cleese is going to be in it as the butler. And so now they're saying that the game, the cover art came out for Fable 3, and it says that it's going to be only on Xbox 360 and Windows, which is a big one because the uh, the second one wasn't available on Windows. And so this is kind of huge, whether it's going to be available on Windows right from the get-go. And again, having John Cleese as the butler, and they're saying that he's actually done more voice work on this game than anybody else, obviously. I mean, if you can if you can sink John Cleese into a project, you want to make use of that. <laughs> Feed him as many lines as you can. You're going to get gold somewhere there. Um, I don't know. Did you ever play one and two of Fable? I played the first Fable, and honestly, like I was interested in the second Fable, but... I never quite got around to playing it and because it was always like, oh, okay, if I have absolutely nothing else to play, I'll play Fable 2. Well, there's always been something else to play because yeah. the one thing that's really bothered me about the Fable series, and we're seeing this definitely just from John Cleese's lines. Now, don't get me wrong. John Cleese is awesome, and he nobody could say these lines better than John Cleese, but the Fable series has always had this weird dual characterization of trying to tell a really, really serious storyline where, you know, you're really crafting your experience and also being completely batshit crazy at the same time. <laughs> and the the two the two halves just never quite meshed well for me. That was my main issue with the series. Again, and it's funny because I've gone back to listen to some of the podcast episodes that I recorded way back when of my other podcast, when Fable 2 was out. And as I was playing it, I was actually having fun. I really didn't like the combat system because it was way too simple. But I mean, you kind of get over that. The um, The actual questing was actually, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. But then... The end was so utterly disappointing that now I'm looking at three and I'm thinking, okay, is it the journey or is it the destination? The old, you know, Eastern philosophy of life. Do I want to pick this up knowing that quite likely the ending will suck ass, but the destination to get there will actually be fun? What the hell? What should I try it or not? I don't know, and, and I'm I'm kind of leaning towards trying it. I I really want to give it a shot. I'm afraid of what they're saying, where it's going to be even less RPG and more action based, because the action was so utterly simple in two that the only thing that I truly enjoyed in two was the RPG again up until the end. 
Well, one thing that's uh, a really important note about the whole Fable on Windows announcement that, at least from what I've seen, has kind of flown under the radar is, if I'm not mistaken, they've said that Molyneux is really on board with the whole natal motion control project. Well, he's and, one of the executive devs on that. He's, right. Yeah, and he's a high up. Fable, Fable 3 was supposed to be really one of, like, let's say, the killer apps for the natal project. Yeah. But if it's also available on Windows how how well integrated really is natal into fable 3 or is it going to be two completely different experiences well that's the thing it won't be and and see if i was picking up this game i would it's one of the few games that i would make certain to pick up on the 360 versus the pc because its primary programming is definitely the 360 which means that a Windows user can pretty much expect a port. It will not be, it, it won't be good. The port won't be good. Now, that being said, like you were saying too, Mulliner is high up with the Natal um, work. So whether or not this is going to involve a lot of Natal, like when he was talking about initially, he was saying, no, it won't be. And then he was kind of hinting that there may be some extra stuff that is Natal based that, you won't be able to do, obviously, if you don't have it at all. Um, I don't know. I think as we get closer to release, I would not be surprised if they are putting more... Natal specific functions in it that are a bonus, but that don't necessarily give you a... Um, how should I word it? That don't give you a bonus to gameplay, but that give you that bonus to, oh, this is fun, I'm swinging my sword kind of thing, or smashing with my shield. I can easily see that, but I don't think it'll give you a bonus and make you better in terms of the gameplay and whatnot. Again, because it is a standalone RPG, though, and not an MMO, they can make it so that the Natal experience is far superior than the traditional we are sorry we well um 360 and pc experience anyways um okay so enough of the fable 3 because nobody again, cares i, I kind of do and that's bothering me because <laughs> i don't want to but i kind of do now something that you are way excited about though is the war for cybertron so we got for uh, some more information about that this week as well yeah, and I know I said last week we weren't going to talk about War for Cybertron every week, but screw it. It's freaking Transformers. I'll talk about it as much as you'll let me. But this week they an announced three more characters. We're having Jetfire on the Autobot side, which honestly really excites me because for somebody who's into Transformers lore, Jetfire is a really awesome character because he used to be a Decepticon. So I really want to see how they're working this in into their new prequel storyline. And then we also got Sideswipe on the Autobots and Thundercracker on the Decepticons. But what really sets this announcement apart is they said, this is it. This is our cast. So first of all, it completely dashed my dreams of having the aerial bots <laughs> and the Stunicons. So I, 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 I shed a single tear. But now it's going to be very interesting because now that they've said this is it, this is everybody that's in, wait for the fanboys. Because now they're going to start talking about everybody that's not in. Like, I don't understand, and I'll go a small fanboy bit here. How can you put Sideswipe in the game when you don't have Prowl? <laughs> Sideswipe, honestly, was a minor character, whereas Prowl is a more 
frontline character, but I don't want to get into all the all the fanboy ranting. So yeah, I just but wanted how, to point that out. How much of that is them wanting to create maybe not a new lore, but to delve delve into the lore a little bit differently versus than what they've had up until now kind of thing. So give a minor character a little bit more room to grow versus an already established character. Oh, I totally understand it. I'm just saying this is the fanboy side of everybody speaking out. Like <laughs> uh, every, every fan has a fanboy inside of them. And unfortunately, some of the fanboys are bigger than others. So... <laughs> And they also released a video trailer about how they're crafting the story for the game. And I definitely recommend anybody to watch the video. And yeah, okay, there's the Transformers flying around and they're really explaining the plot. But okay, that's one thing. Pay attention to the developers when they're talking. You really see that these guys that made the game are super excited about the story they've created. Which for me, if the developers care... I care, just like we saw with Terra. They were honestly really excited about what they were telling us, and it made us more excited about the game in turn. All right, wrapping it back up to Terra then, because this is going to be a very short podcast entry, uh, simply because the interview ran quite a bit longer than uh, we'd expected. Let's talk about the article that you had found for Terra where they talked about the differential between the westernization of games versus the eastern appeal to games. Now, I wanted to touch on this just because there's a couple of things that we didn't talk about with the devs that but I wanted to get your opinion on how you think about it without having a dev to to you know, maybe influence your opinion. Um when I was reading this, it was funny because I was thinking about the differences between that Western mentality versus the Eastern mentality. Now, this article talks about different things like the um, your drive in a game where with the Western mentality, it's all about you versus the Eastern mentality. It's all about the collective. I don't know, but I kind of found that a little insulting. <laughs> <laughs> I've been plenty in plenty of groups and guilds where we cared about the whole, not just ourselves. Well, yeah, you can't specify, but honestly, as a broad generalization, they hit the nail on the head. And one one example I'll use is I played Final Fantasy XI for a while. And Final Fantasy XI was revolutionary in that it was cross-region. You had Americans playing with Europeans, playing with Japanese, all on the same server. And when you got into the interactions with, the again, the different philosophies and just gameplay, it was very interesting. Like, uh, to tell a story here, when I was leveling my monk character i had you know a small group of people that i went with all the time like okay i was the dps i had two other friends as dps and my girlfriend was our healer and then we just picked up a support class and a tank and went out well for several weeks every time we were ready to look for a party there's this one japanese character there not character japanese player there and every you know we picked him up once and we worked well together so we picked him up again and we ran with this guy for several weeks straight and this guy honestly was a machine he was probably the best tank i ever met in the game so but what's really cool is honestly the rest of us weren't that good <laughs> I mean, we, were, we were good but we were nowhere near this guy's level like okay we, we we did things in our own way like the the game was really telling you you have to play the game this way and we said no we're 
going to do it our own way. So we went to places other people didn't normally go. We fought things other people didn't normally fight. And of course, that meant the tank died a lot more than most parties. <laughs> now, as a reference, in Final Fantasy XI, when you died, you lost experience. So imagine if you're in a dungeon run in World of Warcraft. You wipe once, honestly, somebody's leaving anyway. Now imagine if people are losing experience on top of that. They're going to freak out, rage quit. This guy in at least one group, if not more, he probably lost more experience than he gained in that you know couple hours that we were playing together. But he was totally cool about it because he helped us out. You know, he was happy to just be part of the group and helping other people out, which as soon as I read this article, that story clicked to me and it was like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there is a huge difference in the mentality between the Eastern audience and the Western audience. Anyways, we're going to wrap it up with that. Make sure to download the podcast to get the full interview. Everything will be edited and I will make sure to have that out for you tomorrow. There's also going to be a feature from my man, Chris, and that's going to be on the handheld minute for the mobile gaming. And that's pretty much going to wrap up the show for this evening. If you guys want to download the podcast, leave a uh, nice review on iTunes. We would appreciate it. And we will see you guys next week. All right, hello and welcome back to For the Lore. We've got a special interview for you guys tonight. If you are interested in Terra, the exiled realm of Arbra, if you've been watching the news as fearingly as I have been, as well as my co-hosts, Joe and Vince, who are with me, you are going to love this. We've got a couple of guys from Amas with us right now. We've got Brian Knox, who's a senior producer, as well as Robin McPherson, who is a writer for the game. So welcome, guys. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. So let's just start with the uh, getting to know you guys. What are your roles and responsibilities in regards to Terra as well as for Onmass? Sure. So, um, you know, I came to Onmass here back in uh, November as a senior producer. I'm kind of in charge of uh, the localization, QA, writing, uh, Western feedback, um, basically a lot of everything that's in the actual game part. And I'm one of the writers on our team. My, my job is to take the existing storylines and either adjust them for the Western market or to come up with better replacement ones. Now, see, that's a big one, too. Now, like we the three of us are as well as our audience to know this. We're big gamers. We play a variety of games. We're not just locked into one game. A la wow. Um, but what we do see is a lot of for lack of a better term, problems when you see an Eastern game, an Eastern developed game, making its way over to a Western audience. Now, this is something that you guys have publicized a lot that you're working to get it so that the Eastern audience will be, or I should say the Western audience will be as satisfied with the game as the Eastern audience. Absolutely. Yep, on all fronts. I mean, that's, you know, starts from... You know, from a customer perspective, you know, from when they pick up a box, which they don't do in the East, to all the way into the game experience, to the writing, to the game mechanics, uh, to support. It's just, you know, it's a different world. <laughs> so it's just like we need to do a lot to adjust for that. 
What prompted you guys? Because again, there obviously this has been happening a lot. You get game developers who want their games to succeed on both fronts, obviously. However, I personally have not heard such a marketing blitz that this is being worked on as it has been with you guys. And I'm certainly not making light of it. I think it's fantastic. And if we can get more game developers on this bandwagon, I think it'll be great because there are huge differences between the two audiences. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing is, you know, it's about, you know, establishing trust between, you know, the developers and then us on, on mass of the publisher organization and you know they got to trust our feedback you know in our changes um we actually just kind of had a, a hurried rush as we sent our lead writer david noonan over to korea to work on uh you know some story fabrication and making sure that you know our ideas are being implemented so it's like there's just a lot of back and forth and a lot of you know uh work that has to take place to have that happen and you know it's you know it's something you have to commit to as an organization and we're fortunate in that, you know, Terra is still in the process of being developed. So there's a there's an opportunity for localization to have a collaborative effect rather than it be an aftermarket add-on. Which I'm assuming a lot of it is based on what we're seeing right now with your focus groups, correct? Yep. Very much so. So you're actually taking the time to listen to the what is the intended audience and implementing a lot of what is being suggested. I, again, there's no announcement that's been made in terms of when the game's been going to be coming out, but one would assume, again, still quite a while. So you're taking a lot of time to make certain that um, a lot of changes can be refined into the game to then appease to that that Western audience. But again, what brought this on? What is, what was the driving push? Was it all just simply, again, the economics of wanting it to succeed everywhere or something else? Because economics aside, when you think about the fact that how much money you're pumping into having to localize it more for a Western audience, I mean, it's costing you to do that as well. I think it's a, it's a challenge out there that, you know, every developer, you know, kind of stares down and, you know, whether they're up to it. And for us, it's, we want to be a globally successful game and, you know, we're taking the steps we feel are necessary, you know, and like you said, there's a lot of cost and there's a lot of resources involved, but, you know, this is something that, you know, with the product Terra, we feel it has a very global appeal as a core, right? You know, there, there's core products that are meant to appeal to certain territories and you know no matter what you do you can bring them over and you know but they are what they are but with Terra we just you know really feel this is a global product and that we should really go all out and making sure that each territory has what it needs to really be successful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting you touched on that because I actually found a post last night over on the Terra fans forums that went into this huge detail explaining that not just the game differences, but the cultural differences between the Eastern and the Western audiences and how the Eastern audiences are really focused on the group gameplay, whereas the Western gamers really like the individual experience. So how kind of are you guys handling that? Uh, well, that's really kind of a, a good subject to talk about because one of my first trips over there to talk with the lead designer is, you know, that everybody has perceptions of what the other person likes or doesn't like, right? And so as I started talking to the lead designer, you know, if you think about, uh, for example, World of Warcraft, they actually, you know, have a lot of focus on solo content and play. But all that's really publicized and what's really seen in the end game is a lot of raid content and group and party play. So if, you know, for example, WoW is very popular here in the West, maybe that means that all of the West is very much into party as well. But that's not necessarily the case when you dig down into it. And so kind of 
going into these things of like how do the Western players actually play the game is, you know, what we're working with the designers on. It's like for, for like um, a Korean player, for example, they play in very social situations. They go into what's called PC bongs, which is basically a, you know, a land party every night. Right. And so they sit and they party with people next to them and group. And, you know, it's a lot more social, whereas, you know, Western gamers are generally at their home. They're not necessarily playing next to anyone they know, um, unless they're lucky enough to have a wife that plays with them. Or you know, <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's just it's different in terms of situations. Another area that I always bring up that everyone overlooks is time zones, right? You know, the West spans multiple time zones, whereas uh, for Korea, you know, it's just Seoul, right? Like that's you know ninety percent of the population or whatever it is. And so they just have to design the game around that one time zone. So that's something that could you know both operationally, but also community-wise affect gameplay. Yeah, that's actually a big one too in terms of the the lifestyle. I was reading that article as well that Vince mentioned, and it's phenomenal because there's quite a bit of information on there. However, one of the things that strikes me is that a lot of the differences, um, because there are very noticeable differences in your gameplay, your, the type of game style that you have or what you're looking for forward to in a game, a large part of that is influenced by your schedule and your lifestyle and the Western lifestyle is so much different than again, the Eastern lifestyle. Now that being said too, that has to have a huge impact then in all of the rewriting that you're doing for the quest. Like you were talking not just in terms of translations, but right to the core of if you don't feel that a quest is going to be influencing the Western audience as much, are you taking the time to completely rewrite it into something that will? Like, how far are you going down that path? Uh, very often, we completely obliterate things <laughs> if we don't feel they will resonate with with our target audience, and we try and come up with something that will. If that if that means only the actual target of the quest is the only thing that survives, so be it. The key thing is to reach is to come up with something that engages people, draws them in, whether they're playing alone or with a group, and delivers the sort of emotional rewards through storytelling that we've come to expect. Now, before we get into the postmortem, let's talk about other projects that you guys have worked on. Do you feel that some of the other games you worked on, which I know that's worked on Ion as well, do you feel that the work on that has helped you prepare for this in that, like you mentioned earlier, where you are now having the option of changing it to help a Western audience appreciate it more long before it's even released, whereas what we saw with Ion was that it released very similar to the Eastern. It felt very much like an Eastern game. And then now we've been having to wait for the content patches that have been coming out to then make it feel more like something that we would appreciate here in the West. I, so I, was, I was fortunate enough to work on Ion. And, and you're, you're, you're correct. When the localization effort kicked off for Ion, Ion was a released game in Korea. So the, the changes that were going to be possible were going to be smaller by definition. We could we could write we could put we could put tales in there that hit Western psyches, but we couldn't change how they were going to play. And and with Terra, that's not the case. If, if we see problems, people don't want to go grind through a hundred thousand monsters. That's not a problem. We have options, you know. And but it's. It's by coming in that early that we're able to push that back up the chain going, no, no, we need options. Give us more options. Which is awesome. And, Sorry, yeah, go ahead. And, and, 
And Bluehole is awesome about res being responsive to that sort of feedback. Yep, yeah. Like I said, we have a guy that, you know, we identified a problem last week and, you know, he's on a plane as we speak and he'll be there for three days hashing out uh, some of the, the in-game content that, you know, should be really, really cool. <laughs> That's fantastic because again, going back then to to Ion, us here, we we've talked about Ion quite a bit. We were <laughs> we were willing to give it a really good try, and we did. Um, however, we did feel again that a lot of it was something that though would be appreciated by an Eastern audience. Here, it was just a grind. And what's happening now is that what I'm feeling with Ion is that. And we're not going to go on with Ion too much, just to, to make sure. a point though. Wherein it's feeling like it's now having to play catch up to. Um, work with that Western audience, which you got to wonder how many people who have played the game are willing to give it that second chance and resub in order to see if those changes are in fact enough to make it something that they can enjoy. Now with you guys, again, going back to the, the focus groups, you're doing it so well before that with all you would hope that by the time it gets to the, to release, it's going to be polished enough for that Western audience that you can appreciate right out of the gate. So let's talk about the postmortem for the second group testing that you did. Some of the feedback that you sure. received, um, case in point, the questing past level 11, wherein some people were feeling that it was becoming, at that point, even more grinding. And you guys have said that you're introducing a lot more questing. Yeah, we're basically... You know, the main main feedback we got on that was revolving around the repetitive quest. And they were they were repetitive not to where it was like an optional, it was like required repetitive. And basically no, we're we're blowing that out. It wasn't, you know, received well, but you know, we were trying something new with the zone completion the way it was working and you know, it didn't go over. So uh, we're you know back to the drawing board on that progression and uh, you know, it's a a very positive step i think for us in the west but uh the good news is you know what the the korean audience said the same thing so you know this was something that we were kind of united on in terms of our feedback are you finding that a lot of what you're doing right now is literally a let's try this out and see if it works i wouldn't say we're we're that early on um because we do have you know both the central story and central design that we're working towards achieving but uh you know kind of that the pacing and progression in the game is where we're at as far as, you know, kind of the balance. And, you know, some of that goes to, you know, deep game mechanics, but also, you know, just making sure that the stories revealed at specific times. And as we kind of, you know, delve deeper into the narrative. Okay. We, we don't want somebody to find themselves cut off from the narrative because they skipped an area or a quest. We want to make sure that no matter how they approach the game, they, the main points get hit. We don't want anybody to be left out in the cold. Right. Some more stuff that we saw with the postmortem as well was gear because we like our mm -hmm. loot. We love our loot here in the West. <laughs> Give yeah, us more loot. of that loot. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys are working on introducing more gear as well for all of the the classes and whatnot. Yeah, we're we're going to be adding a couple more slots as well as varying it. Uh, there, a lot of the the variation will come with you know you know adding additional armor or, or um, you know. You know, just more visuals, some sort of like, you know, coloration differences. But in general, you know, just like we want more variety. But a lot of what this test, too, was about was kind of putting out the core and then, you know, all the little extra options and trinkets and that stuff. Those are things that as long as you built, you know, a way to expand them, that it's not as hard to go back and add them. You know, for example, our character customization. A lot of people like said, oh, I want more stuff. But that's the way it is right now is just the bare bones so people can get in and experience the things that we need the, the feedback on. We know everyone wants, you know, 
know, tons of hairstyles and, you know, we right, want, right. everyone wants, you know, the male elf. So that's stuff we're putting in. That's kind of like a given to us. So. Right. Okay. And then you were talking about um, classes as well and their individuality as well as their roles. Um, that's something that they're apparently, we haven't had a chance to try it out yet, but what I'm reading is that there's not quite enough individuality and your roles aren't clearly defined enough per class as maybe what we're used to. Yeah. And I, some of that had to do with, you know, there was actually a couple of bugs with the aggro system that made roles in the, the party seem a little bit odd. Like it was harder for the tanker classes to hold the aggro. So it's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's being able to identify what was a bug and, you know, what just didn't work in terms of design. And so, you know, they're both kind of bugs, but at the same time, they're different in terms of fixing it. Uh, you know, we're, we're working on making sure the classes are more differentiated by adding, you know, a, a skill differentiation system, which, you know, we'll have more detail on that a little bit later. But basically that will allow a Lancer to be a little bit different Lancer than a, another Lancer, right? It'll Their core competency <laughs> will remain the same, but, you know, they might pick and choose, you know, certain skills or powers to make them a little bit better. Well, one of the things that we're seeing as well with um, different Eastern games is how, and this is something that's mentioned in that article, wherein you see often where there's a specialization at one point where we saw like an ion, where just because you go as one class, you then have to decide partway through to specialize in one or the other. Is that something you guys are considering? Um, we're trying to make it to where it's flexible for the user so they can kind of uh, go back and forth based off of what they need. You know, you don't ever want to necessarily lock someone into a path once they, you know, made a choice and, you know, without it costing them, you know, millions of gold, right? So it's it's important that we kind of allow for some flexibility because people need to try stuff out, see what they like, see what they don't like. Okay, well, you mentioned the Lancer. This is something that actually Vince mentioned too. He was talking about the classes. Go ahead, Vince. Yeah, one thing that really draws me into the game, and you can have a great game world, but if I can't connect with a particular class, it's kind of hard to get used to. And one thing I'm loving about Terra is you guys are taking a lot of the cliches that we're used to in MMOs and kind of putting a unique twist on them. For example, you have the standard evasive dual-wielding class, but it's a warrior. It's not the, you know, the stealthy sort of rogue. Or I love the fact that the tanking class uses a lance instead of a shield. So what mm -hmm. other kind of unique twists are we going to see here? I think uh, the Mystic kind of a good example of that, too. You know, it's not your traditional healer. You know, he actually dropped kind of potions on the ground, which I think kind of adds to the action combat of the game where it's not, you know, you're just, you know, playing the whack-a-mole along the sides. You're, you know, dropping potions in strategic areas of where you're going to be. Uh, you're standing behind the Lancer because behind the Lancer, you're taking, you know, a 90% damage reduction. So it's really important, like kind of your formation and how you're kind of going at it. And so that, that's kind of how all our classes were built around. The, the original design philosophy was, you know, let's have everyone focus on the center of the game and what's happening with the action. And so all decisions from that point on have been made with that consideration in mind. So with the, with the world of the game basically being the dream of these two beings, it gives you a lot of uh, flexibility there f to be really original with the classes. What you're saying? It, it definitely it definitely opens up some doors. You know, if if somebody dreams up a new way for wizards to interact with the world or mystics to do their thing, you know, that just gives us a, a nice little story bridge that we didn't have to to work too hard to find. Well, I think you know you you raise a good point because it doesn't just affect classes as we have an original IP here and we're not bound to, you know, some predestined lore that you know how it's going to end, you know, in, you know, 
2000 years. Right. So I think that it's really important that, you know, we establish our IP and we control it and make sure that like we develop it, how the community wants to develop. Right. So after a year of service, like, you know, the players will be going in a certain direction and seeing different things. And so you'll see a lot of the story take shape based off of that as well. And one of the things we've done here as part of the localization effort is we've taken a look at the, at the backstory that Blue Hole has produced, which is quite a lot. And we've, we've divvied it out and we've, we've shaped things again to take out the things that don't resonate here and put in new slants on old ideas. And that's, that's, it's, I think that's paid off. We have a lot of talented writers doing a lot to make each individual race and each individual class pop for people. Okay, now before we go any further, actually, here, I'm watching the um, the audience who's listening live, and one of the things that I had mentioned that I wanted to, to talk about as well, you're taking a lot of information and opinions from the people that are in the focus groups and whatnot, and things like that, however... What we've seen often is that sometimes the loudest minority isn't always the best. So as one person put it, as long as they don't cater to bitching noobs. And and it's true because sometimes you're not always getting the opinion of someone that you can, that you know whether or not their opinion means anything. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny that you say that too, because noobs are actually a little bit more of the quieter group compared to the elitist. <laughs> and so I think it's actually a little bit more important that we don't cater to the elitist. But in, in general, we're listening to everybody. And, you know, that's why we have surveys and different things for people to be able to, you know, give their opinion without, you know, having to make a post on our board. And, you know, we've got a lot of different variety of player types here and each of our networks extends out. So, you know, I, we have people here that, you know, maybe play Lord of the Rings online with a group of people. So they're getting feedback from them and their friends and, you know, hey, what do you think of this? And things that are a little bit more intimate matter because, you know, we're all gamers here at NMAS. And so it's, you know, important that, and this kind of came out in the postmortem too. It's like a lot of the stuff going into it, we're like, ah, oh, man, they're going to hate this or oh, oh, they'll love this. It's like, we know that stuff, you know, for some extent because we are gamers. But at the same time, that'll be surprised us too when, you know, something like, you know, just totally different than what we expected. Well, we were talking a little bit about the the postmortem with the the classes and how you guys are putting very unique twists on them. Um, are we seeing the way that races will play into that? Is there a certain like class race combinations that work better? Um, like, are we going to be seeing like a Papori Mystic is a little bit better than maybe you know something else? Is there going to be like a natural affinity in the races that you guys are working into the game? Uh, there, there's certainly going to be lore based things for certain classes, but there should be. Absolutely no difference between a Papori Mystic and a Castanic Mystic sitting next to each other, doing their thing out on the battlefield. It, we want it to be. It's a vanity thing, right? Yeah. Like, exactly. We don't want people to be forced to play a class because they have like resistance to front stun. And so, if you're not that class and race combo, then you're not going to be in our party. So we're really trying to avoid that. But we still, you know, we'd love to have the races kind of have their own unique, cool stuff. And I think that kind of goes with both vanity and lore at the same time. As Absolutely. Far as but, it, but it's for flavor. It's not for mechanic. Yeah. That's actually really, really heartening to, to see because you see that a little bit too much where players get shoehorned into specific race class combinations. I like that. So I like being able to say maybe a Papori Lancer will be seen as often as maybe a Papori Mystic. So. Right. 
Okay, you were talking about the lore. Let's go into that a little bit now. By creating this dream world, you've created an atmosphere wherein changes and additions can be made very easily. It'll be, in my opinion, see, we're all writers here as well. In my opinion, it'd be so simple to add content to this game and when i say simple i don't say that in a bad way it's fantastic because you can dream up literally anything however the problem with the dream world is that it doesn't have the credibility of a quote-unquote real world how are you addressing this we're trying to maintain an internal consistency. I mean, just because, you know, Shara and Arun are doing their, their snooze time thing doesn't mean we're just letting anything go. I mean, we have a we have a fairly rigorous process where we take ideas and we, we bounce them off each other. And, you know, frankly, it only takes one really seriously, you're going to do that, to, to put the kibosh on that kind of thing. We're trying to keep this consistent, logical, but fun and engaging. We want people to read those boxes of text. We want them to get something out of it besides who to go kill. We talked a little bit earlier with um, you guys with the localization and uh, the massive undertaking that it is uh, and how much you guys are just sometimes just nuking things. Um, How much of the lore is translated versus just completely rewritten and expanded for the Western release? How much are you guys carrying over? Um, I'll... I'm gonna. These are gonna be soft numbers, but I, I would say that the, ba- the 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 real basic parts of the world carried over. Most of, most everything else was thought up by one of our writers. Um, you know the the racial backstories all developed here, um, and often changing what was already come up with in Korea. Um, not because what it wasn't necessarily not because it was bad, but because we wanted to find something that would work. Um, yeah, I mean, and to be a little more honest, I'd, I'd almost go so far as say it's 100% rewritten. We don't, we're not editing the text that's translated. You know, even when we were looking for, uh, you know, a translation, you know, how to, you know, manage all of our translations. You know, for me is like I just want someone that can keep something consistent so that our writers are looking at something that's consistent because they're taking that text, they're throwing it out and rewriting it. They might keep the core concept, they might, they might keep the same you know, plot line, but it is being rewritten. It's not being edited. Yeah. Okay, before we go any further, I do want to cut in quickly there just because you piqued my interest. The racial backstories. How much are we going to get here? Is there going to be a lot of backstory per race, or are you quickly going to be shooting everybody in a conglomerate zone where it's all the same quest for everybody? Um, there's going to be several vehicles for delivering that. Um, the b- backstories were initially developed to help give the writers a framework for racial voicing in the game and traits and, and quirks, but we also it's also shaping how quests um, are, are, uh, what am I trying to say? There are quests that will be sort of tailored for, not for a specific race, but to give you a glimpse at that race. Um, it's, there will also be, even though something as simple as the name, right? Like how do you name, you know, 400 different NPCs that are roaming the lands. Well, you have to have an entire reasoning behind that. So yes. we've got generators that, you know, well, Papori always use, you know, this type of structure for their names. And so, you know, simple things like that that people take for granted in naming it is like, you know, we have entire documentation on pages. <laughs> 
Well, that's something that we actually saw with uh, Mass Effect as well, where they have the Mass Effect Bible for right. everything yeah. that goes on in that universe kind of thing. So I would assume that you guys have the same kind of thing. Yep. And, the, you know, we kind of call them style guides here. Our, each race has a style guide. Each zone is a style guide. Uh, it's just a matter of like, you know, this guy's always angry or this guy's, you know, lost his daughter four years ago because an Amon like ran him over. So this person's got a little bitterness towards them. And so it's really all these kind of things that really help bring the world alive. So, yeah, I think a Bible is a, a good term. Yep. So far, what would you guys say has been your biggest obstacle with all this rewriting, writing, and with as much creative juices you're you're putting into it? What's been your biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome so far? It's a very big world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's millions of words, right? So it's so in, in one change you make here, like we'll just you know <laughs> spider throughout the entire game. So you really got to make sure that when you're you're changing something that you've really thought it through. Okay. Um, with that in mind, too, um, we were talking earlier about questing and when you were talking about rewriting certain quests. Um, how close will the questing be to the story of the game? We we're talking about different vehicles to deliver the lore. Um, is that one that we're going to be seeing a lot of? Is questing going to be used as one of those vehicles very close to the oh, story? Definitely. The, the questing will be the primary vehicle. We're not expecting people to go, you know, pour over websites to get our to get our story. The story will be told through the quests, both the main stories for the game and the side stories. And there's going to be lots. And that was actually one of the the big uh, pieces of feedback we got from the focus group test was that after like the the first island experience felt pretty good as far as you know delivering the story. Uh, although we've rewritten it like twice since then anyway, but uh, after that it started to get a little bit scattered. People weren't really sure, so we're really going to kind of hone down kind of those those main missions and make sure that each zone kind of has their own story that tells the kind of bigger story of the world. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of changes in like driving home the story. What was what's the terminology uh, that really came through after both after our test with the uh, emo emotional rewards through storytelling? Yeah, emotional rewards through storytelling. That's kind of our on the wall, everyone's getting a tattooed on their back type of saying right now. <laughs> says that a lot. <laughs> That's always good to hear. That's actually, um, that gets me really excited because it, it's nice to see you guys taking that sort of care with the questing. Um, but the questing isn't always the entire game. Obviously, there's going to be an end point at some point here. Mm -hmm. um, what can we expect to see in terms of a quote-unquote end game? Um, are we going to see something more lore-driven? Are we going to see something more mechanic-player-driven, like PvP? Um, what are we? What, what type of things can we expect? Sure. Uh, so a little bit of everything. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I, you know, we've talked a little bit, and, you know, I won't go into huge detail with the... But, what's called the political system and what's cool about the political system is it's basically lore on the fly right you know players are developing the lore on the fly for that server and that history and so that we think the political system will really um you know help influence uh each server and the people that are on it and uh specifically the people that are looking for story and 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 with that that'll actually help us develop the game in the future too as people are you know developing and you know their own content through the servers uh, there'll, there'll also be PvP. Uh, you know, we're going to have different servers, both PvP and PvE. So for those that don't like non-consensual PvP, they'll they'll have that option uh, through Battlegrounds. Uh, we got some cool uh, tricks up our sleeves on some of the Battlegrounds, which we're going to reveal here pretty soon. Mm. Uh, that's going to have some different modes, I guess you could say, uh, which which should be pretty uh, kick-ass. 
And then uh, we have a couple other things too. Uh, you know, we'll have lots of different instances uh, that'll tell certain stories, and people can you know dive into and get the get the gear and the loot and the items that they want. But also, uh, there's a lot of focus on alternate characters and advancing uh, your uh, your alts, basically. And so we think we're going to be an alcoholic friendly game. Ooh, that's actually something that's not so much a Eastern philosophy as we're seeing in the Western audience, where right. it is about having that altaholic mentality. However, without sounding harsh, often that when a dev caters to that mentality, unless they're offering a lot of differences for those alts, it's an easy out because you're then not providing the end game, but mm-hmm. just offering somebody to do the game all again. Well, it's, it's a definitely a unique challenge, and so I kind of look at it as if you if you ship with you know a thousand hours of total gameplay, then you can divide that up in different ways, right? You could say, oh, it takes a thousand hours to get the max level. Well, that's not that great. But what if you did you know a hundred hours to get the max level? Then you could have ten characters, all experiencing you know different things along the way, because you know maybe you don't you know need to go to this zone because there's three zones that will accomplish the same thing. So they can explore different areas, try different things. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot about, you know, one, another big feedback we got, which, you know, we're expanding upon it later on, but not in early on, is as far as having different racial starting zones. And the way our games developed and our lores developed, you know, everyone is starting in that same area. So there, there's some things that later higher-end players will learn that will help them get those lower-end players go a little bit quicker through everything as well. And that's kind of why I'm saying we're kind of alt-friendly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before we go into the next topic, we did have a question from the audience as well. Um, OMG Seven here wanted to know whether or not there's a lot of a lot of ability for whoever is in charge of the writing on the eastern side to make sweeping changes, or if it is basically the Korean writers who are then in charge of making said changes. When you're seeing a problem with a script or whatever that needs to be changed, is most of the writing still being done by the Korean writers or the Eastern writers, or are you just basically making whatever changes you want on this end? We we work to develop the the, the game that's going to be released to the Western audience. Um, aside from macro level things, the two games, the two writing teams work on different material. The macro stuff, things that are going to drive the overall game, that stays the same. Mm-hmm. But everything else, it, it only looks the same until you start actually reading. And the, awesome. The macro is now kind of at a collaborative state, right? So, like I said, our, our you know we've got a writer over there right now that's working on the main story arc for the second and third continents, and you know they're going to be helping develop them hand in hand for what's going to work. So it's just. It's a matter of collaboration, and I think we've we're finally at a point now. You know, we've been building our organization for the past few months, where you know we've really established some great trust between their writing team and our writing team, and you know, it's it's pretty awesome to kind of sit back and watch it all unfold. It, it's certainly one of the things that I find exciting about working here is, is that chance to work together with our counterparts. It's actually, it's not that we have anything against, obviously, the Eastern writing as well. It's just it does make a huge, huge difference when you get to see a game that was specifically written with that Western mentality versus the East, which is something that I'm sure you guys are hearing quite a bit of as well. We do, but again, this uh, an Eastern player who came over to California and started playing the game would not see the same game other than, you know, you use the same controls, but and the thing, the animations all look the same, but everything else is different. Cool. It, they would be just as surprised. 
Okay, another question from the audience, and then we'll go on to uh, the art and visuals, which I can't wait to talk about. Um, Tig in the audience wanted to know, because you've got two different localizations now too is that going to be taking up a lot more of your time with bug fixes and things like that uh, so it, it's separate teams with that right so it's not yes it does take um you know resources to kind of maintain these two different uh type of things but it, it, it the way we have it set up it's not going to like hamper game design bug fixes or art bug fixes or anything like that it's just it's different teams. It means more people, right? But it's different teams. Okay. So let's go on to the art and visuals. Because the game just looks amazing. Let's be honest. <laughs> you're, Thank you. you're creating a game that looks phenomenal. Now, we've been waiting for a game that has this next-gen graphics that is is something that we can enjoy in the west because ion was close ion looked phenomenal however it then didn't have the gameplay that we needed so you can't have one without the other your game looks fantastic it does you guys have started with the screenshot of the week feature too so that we can see even more of what's going on inside like what's some of the stuff that you're the most proud of with with the art style and the visuals that you're working on for me personally, it's a, it's a lot about the kind of the scope. And so you're not fighting like these little rabbits right at first. You're going out there and you're fighting these huge trees and then you're fighting even bigger things and bigger things. And so I, I think kind of that scope and scale of it all is what's really impressive. Even the first city uh, with Velika, it's just massive as you fly in on the Pegasus. It's just, you know, really kind of awe-inspiring. So I, I really think that kind of scope and scale is really what gets it for me. I, uh, personally, I, I'm in addition to the incredibly detailed, you know, mob and PC design, um, I, f- I, I find the colors and the palettes that they put into these different zones really helps give them their own feel. You know, I, when I'm in one area, I'm not sitting there going, yep, this is the next zone where I kill things. It's, it's a new area and I can feel it and I can sense it visually. That's fairly important too, and you need to have those differences in the in the zones and all that. But also the transition. Again, there's so many things with art style that you notice in games that, though subtle at first, if it's something that you look for, it it's appreciated by gamers. Um, like again, in terms of without having to do the direct comparison to Ion, but it is right now one of the better looking games. Um, are you guys using the yeah. same engine? Are you guys using the same? One yeah. of the things that I wasn't as crazy about Ion was that in some zones you did get the impression of it just being an overlay on a frame. Like how much are you guys doing to so that, you know, whether it's from the air or whatever, the 3D feel of the world, it still looks fantastic. So, so Ion was built on the Far Cry engine and it's a zone-based game. So I think that's maybe what you're talking about in terms of maybe on a frame. Yeah. Um, with Terra, it's built on the Unreal 3 engine. Uh, so, you know, Mass Effect, all those games came out on the same engine. And it's an open world. So you could run from one end or one, one side of a continent to another. I've done um, so too. <laughs> so, so you do get this much more kind of wide open feeling in terms of the world. You don't feel as pinned in. Um, and set to a certain path, you can kind of go and do your own thing. Um, and then each zone within the thing, you know, kind of has its own flavor, like you said, it's, and those transitions are very important. But overall, it's, you know, it's just a lot more wide open, I think. And you're putting a lot of effort into one of the things that they mentioned as well for the uh, the focus groups is on different spell effects and different race class visual differences and things like that. Yeah, and all that stuff, you know, and that'll have to be balanced too, right? So if you had, 
infinite numbers of combinations of you know everything and you know 400 races you know that means you need that many more textures and that many more uh you know models and that makes it really difficult in terms of massive gameplay and i think that's you know kind of why you see you know mmos kind of start drawing a line at certain you know customizations because there is technical limitations to it all and you even do certain tricks and certain things like you know if you zoom out far enough everyone kind of looks the same uh, and that you know there's tricks like that but you know we're really trying to make sure that you know is about the middle of the screen and the action and the, the the kind of visuals and a lot of that has to do with you know a animations b the kind of the spell effects so it's you know really important that all kind of flow and cohesive because if you're not you got you got to watch the center of the screen so if you just have some lame little small fireball you can barely see you know like how are you going to know that you have to dodge <laughs> to get out of the way of that yeah we want people in the game the the, the landscape is beautiful but stay in the game that's perfect way to to say it because a um, big part of games in general and especially MMOs is keeping the player truly integrated into the game system. Like we've seen a lot these days and this is a big buzzword especially for the For the Lore crew of a cinematic experience where yeah. it honestly takes the controls out of the player's hands to just watch the game instead of playing the game. So really what can we expect like as far as like CG cinematics and how are you going to keep the players in the game? We, we had some positive response to the cinematics, and we're going to try and work some of those into the quest as they go. Uh, you know, it's, it's a really effective way of telling a story, especially for those that don't necessarily read the blocks of quest or text in the quest. And so, you know, trying to tell that visually we think is important. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, it's a, you know, we want to make sure that we're balancing, you know, the number of, you know, the cutscenes or cinematics versus you know another quest that cutscene for that one quest is going to take up the resources that could have added 10 more quests to the zone you know maybe it's more benefit to one way or the other but you know we're, we're exploring the cinematics because they did have a pretty uh, strong response yeah we, we 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 want them to carry the right amount of dramatic weight we're not going to you know throw up a movie where you know that no that bunny must die go kill that bunny yeah, <laughs> but it's, you know, that dragon is coming. Go kill that dragon. Yeah, because to some extent, you want it to be dramatic and cinematic, not just like, oh, well, you just entered an area and now you get this. Wow. It's like you want that to pop up and be like, oh, man, cutscene, right? Like, Cool. Um, before we move on to the combat system, which I can't wait to talk about, um, one of the things that they're asking in the audience is, again, too, uh, Liffel in the audience was asking, which I plan to ask as well, you're you're doing a lot with visuals. Oh, how is this going to affect the technical specs of the system required to run the game? So, you know, it's really our goal to provide the specs that is going to run in a good gameplay experience. And, you know, there you, you can run the game on certain systems, you know, with a lot of games, but can you really play the game? Like, I think there's a difference between running the game and playing the game. And so we're really making sure that our specs are, uh, you know, pretty good. And we actually have different, you know, kind of standards here in the West than they do in the East as well. So, you know, we're, you know, the specs have been released. Uh, I believe it's like dual core, two gigs of RAM and like a seven series NVIDIA right now for kind of our, our min specs, I guess you could say. But we're going to make sure that we kind of run it through all our phases here and make sure that, you know, we have the right experience for the for the West as well. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the combat system because this is something that you guys are touting and it is something that is very different than your traditional MMO. The having to actually have some measure of skill to play this game <laughs> versus just being able to press, you know, three buttons if you're a hunter kind of thing and wow, that's huge. It's, it's certainly one of the most engaging things I've found. Um, I... I 
even somebody who's running around playing a little mystic has to stay in the game. Yeah, I tried to play a healer the other day, and I'm like, we're going to blow healers' minds. Like, Oh, and, dude, you better. You know, <laughs> and it's one of those things, like, most people are, there's people that are healers, and that's what they play, and they love it. But then they're, like, you wish there was a crowd that would sometimes play healers, and that always isn't, the, that's never the case, right? So you tend to have less healers. And so it's like, with this, it's, there's so much action in being a healer. Like, I, I found it much more difficult than, you know, either being a tank or, um, you know, so I think it's a really challenging class in terms of, you know, your position and paying attention to everything. So it's just, I'm really excited about the healing stuff. <laughs> I'm not a healer. I'm normally a DPS type of guy. So. Yeah. Okay, we're not done talking about healers then. I was going to ask that later, but now you brought it up. See, you're on a show right now with people who love to heal, mainly Joe and myself. When we play a game, typically the first class we play is a healer, correct, Joe? Uh -huh. Oh, God, yes. Yes. So, But the problem is that in most games, playing a healer is the very same thing all the time and it's gotten oh. to the point where it's old it's used and it's simply not fun that whack-a-mole mentality it, it's day is done so then what is your healing mechanic how is it that different and that sell me on it i want to hear your sales pitch well so there, there's two uh healing classes there's kind of the primary healer with the priest class and the priest class has a few different types of heals uh one of the heals is actually um, you know, it's kind of, so you activate the skill and then you actually have to move your cursor over the person that you want to heal and then it'll kind of tag them and then you'll release the heal and it'll, it'll do it. So you can do that up to two people. So you go like tag, tag. I'm not sure if you've played and if you haven't, I'm a little disappointed. Uh, Ocarina of Time, you know, with the boomerang. Highlight each one, right? If even, even Twilight Princess, right? If oh, you yeah. haven't played, if, if, if either of these two numbnuts co-hosts I have have not played Twilight, I'll hang <laughs> up on them right now, or I should say Ocarina yeah. Time. I'll hang up on them. They don't deserve to be on the show. So, yes, no, I hear you. Go ahead. Yeah, so so you know how you kind of, with the boomerang, you kind of like bing, bing, and then you let it go and it hits both those yeah, things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simple that for the healing. Uh, there's also kind of a spell that arcs out in a circle in front of the user, and so you basically run up. And this works really well with Lantern because you take so much less damage behind him. So if you can stay behind the Lantern, you can keep healing them by staying behind them and take less damage yourself. Um, and then you also kind of have this huge circle where you try and keep everybody knit together that does kind of an overall regen. And so obviously the, the more harder ones to land are the ones that are a little bit more direct. And then the ones that are a little bit less reward, like the regen type ones, are a little bit larger radius. So you kind of, it's, just, it's a balance of like busting out your region and then making sure that you're near the tank so because if he's you know it's not like you can just turn and cast if you see his life as well you got to be near him and paying attention so it's really a lot of running around and then you get some cool attacks too because you're going to be in the action so you might as well blast off a few yeah and the mystic is is a, is a slightly different experience i mean they also have the the lock on heal and they throw off or they throw off a heal over time which can buy the priest enough time to either get in position or whatnot, but they're also running around dropping little healing orbs that players who aren't necessarily the typical focus of the healer can run up and go, oh, thank uh -huh. I got health now. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and, then the, and both classes provide some amazing buffs. Yeah, and the Mystic has a buff where it's like if you're within a 20-meter radius 20 meter, yeah. of them, then every time that you make a hit, you'll get healed for 70 points. So it's like you, the Mystic has to make sure they're close to everyone and keep that kind of buff going. And then there's the 100% bonus to crit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That doesn't stink. 
So basically, you took the entire concept of what healing has been up until now, threw it in the trash, and came up with something completely different and potentially cool. Yeah, and I think that you see a little bit of people that are like, it's kind of blowing their mind, especially for the healers that are used to just kind of clicking and pointing and going. And so there's a little bit of complaints of, well, this is kind of hard. It's like, well, I don't know if it's so much hard. It's just really different. And so for the healers to, you know, they're going to have to, you know, put down the sandwich. And in most games, I, I've found healing to be just dreadful. And I've stuck with DPS. But in Terra, I played a mystic. Well, and that's about it. A quick question about that. You said that there's going to be two main healing races. You're going to have like the priest and you're going to have the mystic. Um, in a lot of games that we've seen that have tried this uh, with multiple healing classes, we've seen sort of the hybrids uh, kind of die off in uh, behind uh, the primary healing classes. Are we going to see a balance between the two that somebody's as likely to bring the priest as they are to bring a mystic? Um, is there balance enough? because the mystic buffs are that much better that they really kind of offset the little bit better healing power of the priest. So, you know, I, I think, you know, your five man group is going to have one of those two classes plus a tank and maybe two tanks and then the damage. So, Okay, that's very cool. You guys got me really excited <laughs> about that. I, I can't, I can't honestly uh, say enough about that. I'm, I'm, impressed well and i think that's across the board man for the combat system in general you're just going to have to rethink a lot of what you do and how you do like i think that in the past a lot of mmos have been really like down on kind of like archers or sorcerers because they have that range advantage over the melee but now all of a sudden it's like there's a skill factor in aiming and so yes they may do more damage and at a range but you have to aim it and it's just not always that easy to do that and so it, it that skill factor automatically helps to balance out those classes and it uh, on a personal level this makes me really excited too because I'm, a, I'm an amateur game developer and uh i've recently gone on a few tirades about uh what other <laughs> games have done with that stuff and what i've been trying to avoid and it's nice to see a, a company a group of guys like yourselves that are uh, taking this and doing exactly what I've been looking for for years. And I've been looking for uh, big people to break the mold. And I'm happy to see that you guys are, are taking leaps and bounds towards that, that objective. So, right. so congratulations. Yeah, we're, that really, we're really trying hard to, to stand out and be different, you know, especially with our combat system, because we think it's just, it's that unique and it plays that well that, you know, we think people will be really surprised. We, we showed it off at GDC and then obviously in our focus group test and everybody was just, kind of blown away with it and so we're, we're getting all geared up now for e3 and uh, we think we're going to have a great response there as well all right well while my co-hosts may enjoy staying around <laughs> on their little dresses just healing i'm all about it's a robe it's a robe <laughs> i'm all about melting some faces so let's talk some pvp what have you guys got lined up there so pvp is a it's actually very you know it's very group centric in terms of we're not you know we're not balancing for the one versus one so it's not going to be a priest versus a warrior necessarily although priests are very difficult to kill but that said you know we're really kind of gearing towards this group kind of mentality both in battleground in the world pvp as well as um we, we kind of have like duels that as a group you can bet another group and so you can put money on the line and then you guys can you know kind of really put your money where your mouth is uh which is a pretty cool feature that you can kind of use anywhere at any time um, like I said, we're going to talk more about the battleground stuff here later on. But in general, like PvP is just that much more exciting because it is action. It's not, you know, gears level, all that's going to play a part. But you know, this you know kind of action skill is really going to take it to the next level as far as like you're going to be able to outdo somebody that's maybe a couple levels higher if your skill is that much better. 
It's, it, it's, and, and the, forget the whole caster mentality of who's going to lock me up for 18 minutes while they pummel me. You know, <laughs> that's not in the game. It's not here. <laughs> now, how much are you taking into account? Uh, again, you said it, one class may not be able to beat another, but how how much are you taking into account class balancing? See, that's something that we've seen with other games. <coughs> wow, um, we're in the 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 balancing that they have to do for PVE and PVP yep. screws up the game. Let's be honest, completely yep. fucks up that game. Whereas if you can actually do something where it's not about every single other class can fight every other single class like is that something that you're taking into consideration or are you looking more at you have to be in a group to pvp effectively like ion what are we looking at it's a lot more geared towards group pvp it's not the one versus one uh, arena type system it's not you know because it's just it's so hard to balance for and you know i think you know, WoW's done a pretty good job at it, you know, despite how difficult it is. Um, but, you know, we're going to be looking towards adding some maybe skills that are more PvP-specific and not necessarily gear that's PvP-specific, because I think that there's a big difference in being able to wear gear and being able to change on the fly versus skills. You can change a lot easier on the fly. Uh, so if you're out in the world and you want a PvP, using certain skills will be a lot more beneficial to you. Uh, we're also looking at kind of some hybrid skills that will help people solo a little bit better, which will also be a little bit of benefit in PvP, too. So are you going to be integrating world PvP as well as uh, PvP zones, battlegrounds and WoW kind of thing? Yeah, so there'll be instanced PvP, which is, you know, like a battleground. Um, and then there'll also be world PvP. But we are going to have a server where there's no world PvP as well because, you know, that's one of the things that I think that taking the game from the east to the west is, is a major difference. Um, <laughs> it's something that we talked to. <laughs> you need your Care Bear servers. Well, it was actually kind of surprising to me because I sat down to him. I was, you know, as I was, you know, talking about, you know, taking on this role, and I was just, all right. So you're Korean games. So here are the things that you're probably going to have, and you're going to be PVP focused. Um, you're going to be, you know, really, really great looking graphically, um, and then in the end, you're probably going to have like, you know, fortresses and sieges and all that. Stuff. And I was like, okay. So, and then I talked to them. And they're like, well, we actually were gearing a little bit more towards the PVP, and, and you know, we're going to have PVP on every server, um, but you know, we really want a strong focus on the PVE. And that that really surprised me. And I was like, oh, okay. So they're you know really forward thinking, and you know, making sure that this game really does have that global appeal. And so I pressed a little bit farther on the PVE. Was like, well, there's a lot of users in the West that do not want to be involved in PVP. Period. Like, you know, we need to be able to support both server sets, and they were totally on board. And so, you know, that's one of the I, that might be the first thing that we talked about, you know, as far as really making sure that, you know, the, the first addition, I guess, for the West was kind of having those different server sets. Okay, one more question before we move on to our next topics. Um, are we then going to be seeing more rewards for PvP as well as PvE, set that kind of separation? Again, going back to WoW because it's a classic example. Are we going to see you know PvP sets, uh, armor sets and weapons and whatnot versus PvE? Right now the plan is to not differentiate in gear versus PvP versus PvE, but there will be... I think there'll be a lot more intertwined in the games. I, I always think that there's two games in WoW. There's the PvP game and then there's the PvE game. Um, whereas I, I believe ours will be a lot more intertwined, um, especially in the political system. Um, and then, you know, even the gear and all that kind of stuff. So I, I just don't think you'll see that 
you know, clear distinction of, oh, well, they're, you know, a PvP player and they're a PvE player. Plus, a lot of, it'll be very fairly easy for somebody to quickly recustomize their gear simply by throwing in some different crystals that will have a profound impact without requiring them to carry around 97 sets of gear. Sorry, what? Crystal? What? What? <laughs> I mean, I, so, so the way the game works is each gear can be equipped with different crystal slots, but you can also do some enchantments through crafting. So there's going to be the, the people that completely make their gear towards PvP. And, but that won't necessarily be the reason that's there, right? This isn't going to say PvP set, right? Like, it'll just be because those people choose to go down that path. And so that's really what it's about is that choice and letting people kind of use what they want to use. If they want to really skew their gear towards heavy PvP, they'll probably be able to. But on the whole, we're hoping that gear for everyone works across the board and that the systems are, uh, you know, you know, not mutually exclusive and able to intertwine with each other. Um, uh, one last quick question about PvP here. Um, this is a question that's been on my mind as well as OMG Sem in the, the chat here. Um, tanks in PvP. In a lot of games we see that tanks are forced to uh, respec or choose different talents in order to just basically keep up DPS. Every, uh, PvP winds up being about DPS and right. healers, and that's pretty much it. Um, are tanks going to be useful in PvP here? Are we going to see them have a defined role, uh, or is it going to be something where they're pretty much just a random meat shield that people try to ignore? Well, I think that uh, tanks serve a greater purpose in Terra because they actually physically can block someone from getting at you. So if you have four Lancers in your party, you could flop them all down in a line and physically block off your archers behind you. And maybe you're in some sort of, you know, hallway, right? No one's getting at you unless you kill those tanks. So they'll actually have a very, you know, so I, I think that kind of strategic formation, you know, collision is super important to PvP. Okay, hold Excellent. on. If I can ask a quick question there, you're talking collision. So basically your individual avatar is a collision in the world, so people can't walk right through it? Outside of cities, yes. Obviously cities that would just be used for griefing, so... Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in combat, and you'll you'll notice in the game now, is like if you're fighting a monster, you can't just run through a monster and then, oh, you know, dude. backstab, right? Like, you have to walk <laughs> around it. And the shield guys, if they plant their shield in the ground, you can't get... You have to go around them, right? You can't go through them. This just keeps getting better and better. I see that's something Good that Lord. I did not realize that that was in there. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so no, we, like a we bunch think that's going to be a huge thing that's a little bit underplayed, and you know that kind of goes all about the formations and the parties, and you know, and and monsters too, right? Monsters can't just run through you to get at the casters, so they're going to have to physically hold things back. The casters appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's that you're creating a whole different mechanic then for PvP, let alone PVE. But your PvP, like you're saying, if you can actually have a meat shield in front of you that then makes a difference where in a, a melee class can't get to the caster behind them. That's awesome. That's you're yep. you're then em empowering people to group together. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I'm <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Vince had some questions about the fact that he was reading. Oh, yeah, great. I have to follow that up now with boring <laughs> stuff about economics. Thanks. <laughs> no, I saw, I saw on the website in your uh, FAQ, you, had, you said that players are going to have a direct impact on the world, dictating the flow of the economy and maneuvering through the political system of their server. And now, a couple questions there. First of all, how is that the economy side different from what we're used to seeing with our auction house? So, so there is a you know the traditional broker house in the game, but the political system will 
I'm not going to get into it, unfortunately, but uh, it, it will have a direct impact on everything that's bought and sold in the world of terror. All right, so you can't get into it that much, but at least yeah. a small question. Is it going to be driven through NPCs, or is it entirely player-based? So the, the political system? Yes. So that'll be, you know, players will be elected to office. And so I'm pretty sure you can discern from that how that might affect the world's economy. Okay, very, very interesting. So are there <laughs> any other factors that are going to come into play to make it the sandbox MMO we've been told it is, or is that enough as it is there? I think the the non-division um, you know, and races is a big thing. You know, players will build and destroy allegiances on their own terms. You know, you're not forced to be with a mon unless you want to. Maybe there'll be a, a role-play guild that only accepts a mon, and, you know, that's what they they decide to do, but that's their choice. It's not our choice. We're not saying it'll be called Scantall. <laughs> exactly. It's not something we just are forcing on players. So it's like they'll really determine, um, you know, how the server ebbs and flows in terms of uh, alliances. So that's interesting. So you're not really limiting the players in gameplay-wise. So if, if a group of players wants to do whatever they want, it's not going to be a hindrance to them. Right. We're not defining their enemy for them or their, al- or their alliance. Weird. All right. Interesting. We were talking a little bit about that, that sandbox MMO feel you guys are going for, and uh, one of the, the questions that I would like to ask, and if I've missed this covered anywhere, I apologize, but are there going to be considerations for guild or player housing or like guild banks that you start seeing in a lot of other games? Uh, I know that's a big Western thing. A lot of people are calling for that. Is that something you guys have considered? Yeah, um, we're working on implementing guild housing for launch. So. Uh, it, it won't be, you know, it'll be kind of the, the basics of having a place to go to um, and to gather and congregate as a guild. Um, and then we're going to hopefully expand it from there. But, you know, that's definitely in our, um, and that'll, that'll tie in somewhat to the political system also. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, going back to the, uh, the, econ- the economy and the craftings there, um, obviously there's a, the, the profession systems in the game. Um, how heavily dependent is your crafting system on other crafting skills like between players? Um, are you guys trying to promote interdependency between players? Um, or is it something that you would see more individual, like I can level this myself all the way through? Um, is there going to be some mechanic in the professions that will kind of breed sort of interaction? Which is something that I, is actually one of those big Eastern versus Western things as well. Um, so the crafting systems, uh, didn't receive the best feedback in our focus group test, honestly. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was too freaking hardcore, like, to be honest. Um, and we want to be able to appeal to all users within. So we're really re kind of thinking how it works and, you know, the ebb and flow of it. Like the, to some extent, like there's a lot of design that goes into it as far as making sure that players are interacting if there is a working economy, but there can come a point too, where it just begins to be a pain in the ass and you have to rely on everyone for everything. And then, you know, you can't get it done. And so, you know, that's, that's one of those areas where still kind of, you know, we have the basics on the core down, but then, you know, kind of the difficulty of obtaining different things and how they work and flow within the economy is what we're really trying to hammer out right now. But it, it didn't, go as well as we'd hoped it did in focus group test too. So I was one of the surprising ones for it. Okay. Along the same lines, um, how important is the crafting system to the world in general? Like what are you guys aiming for? It's, it's pretty important. Um, um, there, there are changes underway, but suffice it to say, I mean, players will be crafting. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a part, uh, it's going to be as much as part of their arsenal as questing. Yeah. There, there's yeah. a lot of, 
things you can do with crafting that kind of, you know, get you to that next level of gear without having to get that, you know, a random drop necessarily. So if you, you know, weren't present for your guild boss fight, you won't be as penalized as much if you make up for it maybe in crafting. And are you going to be setting up crafting like Ion where you can actually gain experience from it or it's just a completely separate entity? Right now it's a, a separate entity. Okay. Are you making it where it's going to be, again, we'll go back to Ion because it's familiar, obviously. Ion's crafting, wow. Bit. Oh, <laughs> we had things to say about that on the podcast. Wow. Like, are you making it as grueling as it was in Ion and as expensive? Our focus group test to crafting was kind of on par with Ion's, and so we are working on it. <laughs> the new motto is more fun last years. Okay, before we go on, uh, one of the questions from the audience too, which is something that I'm wondering about as well, is the crafting in the game split up in terms of um, like resources in terms of harvesting as well as crafting, or is it all just crafting, or what are we looking at? Uh, resources, drops, and bought goods, you know, kind of all make up the different recipes. All right, cool. Hmm. Okay, well, um, let's bring it back to just uh, as much hard work as you guys have put into this game, because obviously you, uh, we're getting the sense of enthusiasm, we're getting a sense of, of, of involvement that you guys have in this, which is good. Um, yeah. Of everything you've done so far, what is the thing you're looking forward to most seeing go live? It's hmm. a good question. Um, I really think that first... You know, I, I, I can't be there for every single person that logs in, but the first time they log in and they realize how different the combat system is in the game is always kind of a cool thing. I, I find myself trying different MMOs now just, you know, for free time. And I'm just like, oh, like, uh, why can't it be more like Terra? Right. Like, I just, <laughs> so it's just I, I think people will be surprised with how how intuitive it is and how much of the why the hell has anyone done this before type of uh, response with, you know, in terms of the action combat. The combat and control system is is fabulous. It's one of the things I really love about this game. But for me, I, I think what I'm looking forward to is watching the players work their way through our stories, our our ideas, our plots, and hopefully getting something out of that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, on to a more, I guess you would say, interesting type of, of question as far as... Touchy, yes. Um, <laughs> currency selling and botting are rampant in pretty much every MMO launch that's out there. Um, really? I've never heard of that. Well, this leads us to the question. Um, it's it's seen it's been a, a huge deterrent for players in a lot of games. Um, what is your guys' plan for combating this? Oh, extensive and long, and I you know, hope so. You probably. <laughs> You probably read Pat Wyatt's interview at, at Terra Hispania, but it's he'll talk for days about it. Like it's just it it's not a problem that can be easily solved. It it happens on a hundred different levels in a hundred different ways, and it's just it's something that we're you know it's, you're you're constantly you know one step ahead and then you're one step behind and one step ahead one step behind and very fluid. Like I, like I'd love to give you like millions of different things that you know we're working on, but we're looking at everything. We've we're examining Eve's system of Plex. We're looking at you know the the secondary market system that with Live Gamer and EQ2 has. We're looking at uh, just every single thing out there that other companies have done to combat it. You know as well as you know some new things that you know we're hopefully going to be working on on our side as well. It's just 
it's just a never ending battle that we know we're up against. And it's, you know, we've laid out some things in the very beginning for Terra to be successful. And, you know, of the top, like, this is probably the top one. We know we have to, you know, do a good job of, you know, the security and kind of customer support that goes along with this, because it's just, it, it, it's such a terrible problem like for the, for the gaming industry and then more particular for MMOs. And, you know, until, you know, the, the, the best and easiest solution, at least for us would be for, you know, players to stop buying gold, but that's just not going to happen. <laughs> no, <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> right. So it's just, no, how, how can we make sure that, you know, players, you know, security isn't being compromised, that, you know, their credit cards aren't being stolen, that they're not losing accounts, you know, that the economy is not being falsely inflated for certain things and that, you know, that, that to some extent we have to accept the problem in some areas and make sure that users aren't being as affected by it as, you know, they could be. Okay. And with that said, we're going to move on to one one final thought for me here. Terra is going to be coming up against some pretty heavy competition. You guys are entering the market at a time where there's a lot of a lot of big names that are hitting at the same time. What truly sets you guys apart? Is it just the combat system? Is the way everything is integrated together? What do you feel is your biggest strength compared to all the other competition that's coming out? Well, I mean, you know, we keep hammering home the combat system because I think that does separate us even from games that are coming out. It's just, you know, the non-target based action combat is is different. So unless there's, you know, an MMO out there that I don't know about, which <laughs> probably hasn't happened in 10 years since I've started this. But uh, uh, it, you know, we really think that's going to set us apart. We think our art and visual style is definitely going to set us apart. We think we have a strong team here. Um, for customer relations and support. And we, you know, like I said, it's going to be a never ending battle with security and, you know, accounts, but we really think, and it's really our goal to provide that, you know, kind of, you know, triple A level of uh, customer service to our players. If we can have one last question from the audience where they're talking about um, the hitboxes for characters, because if you're having a game we're in, um, there's going to be a heavy PVP influence and you're having classes that differentiate differentiate in size quite a bit, then that hitbox actually has a pretty big impact. Is that something that you guys are taking into account? Yep. It's one of those things that was immediately thought of and players immediately responded with. And, you know, without going into specifics, it's it's being balanced for uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, So, Everybody does not have to log in and make a small little papori to be the best out there. Well, actually, <laughs> so no, they're the ones that are going to be punted. They're going to be the gnomes totally. of Terra. There will be punted yeah, to no, all. I, mean, I, I always did that, too. I always played small races, especially in PvP games. I was like, well, I can hide in bushes. I can be smaller. I can do this. So you have to click on me. Yeah, some of those will be a little bit of an advantage. But, you know, in our game, you know, bigger characters have longer reach. So that Ooh. makes a difference. Nice. Hmm. Very nice. There's your Lancer, Vince. Okay, Chetzel, there's your answer. Every nugget they're giving us, man. All right. Well, I do want to end it at that because this has been a phenomenal interview. Guys, you were supposed to be on for like 30 to 45 minutes, and you gave well over an hour of your time. We do appreciate it very, very much. That was a great question. If you guys have any pearls of wisdom or sales pitches, now's the time. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to be at E3 or in the area, definitely be looking for us. We have a booth there um, and there'll be lots of coverage in and around E3. We got some cool things that are going to be debuting about that time as well. So uh, you'll, you'll probably hear a lot for us from us in mid-June. And then we hope to just, you know, keep the train on rolling up and through Comic-Con and PAX and Gamescom all the way around. So, you know. Well- 
As people are selling in the audience, you've sold us. Okay, now it's just a matter of delivering on that sales pitch, boys. Get to work. I want to see this all in practice because, God damn, it's sounding good. Again, (laughs) thank you very much for dropping by. We really do appreciate it. And maybe as you're getting closer to release, we'd love to have you guys back on to give us an update of how it's been going. Of course. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. This is Kirby with a Handheld Minute, and this is the review for Blue Dragon Awakened Shadow. In Awakened Shadow, you are awakened by two members of an ancient race, only to find the entire world has lost its ability to use shadow magic, which fuels a person's ability to cast spells. The events in Awakened Shadow occur two years after the end of the Xbox 360 version of Blue Dragon. The hero is able to master six different types of shadow magic, leveling them up to gain better stats and abilities. Features of this game include character creation for sex, voice, look, and family emblem. Your gear adjusts the character's appearance. This is an action RPG. Characters do not level, rather the various shadows level, allowing easy integration of different characters. Expect to play for 20 to 30 hours for the core of the game. There is an option to farm bosses to gain rare items, which could be good or bad, but the twist is you can play these previous bosses with your friends. This game is expected to be released on May 18th, and the cost is $35. You've been listening to the review for Blue Dragon Awakened Shadow, and this is Kirby for the Handheld Minute. Good day. What's up, boss? Yo, yo, how's it going? <laughs> Hell of a day, man. That good. Well, I read about the almost getting hit by a car at the stop sign. This yeah, morning. that was a blast. That's that's kind of interesting. To the point where I pounded on her fucking hood and pointed at the stop sign. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I work under the assumption that nobody's ever going to stop, so I wasn't in any danger. But you should have seen the look on this chick's face when she saw me literally right there <laughs> she stayed at that stop sign for another five minutes before she pulled away well you scared the crap out of her good maybe next time she'll stop well accidents happen it's not like it's she not hit accident. you <laughs> she was coward she didn't hit you she just almost hit you freaking pansy Ooh, look, little girl almost hit me in her car and I, I, unfortunately we, we live in a world with Peter Molina who ruins it for everybody else in the industry because you have somebody who can make you drool over a game and then you realize later it was all just talk. So then you have to kind of factor that in when you're dealing with anybody else that they have that same potential to just speak a really good speak. Okay, yeah, we'll just we'll just make sure we enunciate. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right.
by now you should have had a couple of drinks in you anyway so that you can relax and That's have right. fun so pff, don't That's sweat it yeah we can hear you don't make fun of us <laughs> <laughs> You can always tell when Joe's typing. He's freaking loud. <laughs> Only when I'm excited. <laughs> Don't go falling asleep. We haven't started yet. <laughs> Give us time to bore you at least. It's not going to happen. Don't worry. <laughs> Such optimism. They haven't listened to prior episodes. Clearly. <laughs> I haven't listened to prior episodes. <laughs> Vince, we're, we're, we're lucky that you uh, can form a cohesive sentence today. He didn't get hit by the car. It was almost. Almost. It just okay. bruised his ego is all it did. Poor little boy. Little girl almost ran him over. That'd be pretty epic, though. Get hit I by a car. Sh- still make the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I'm in the hospital, Joe, but I'm okay, guys. Joe can't even make it if he's not done his laundry. Man, I would send you like a free T-shirt for that. Oh, a free T-shirt! Way not, to commend the man for that. What for getting hit by a car and still making it? Yes, yeah. you. You're not. Your panties aren't even done, and you can't make it on the show. Oh, they're still hey. a little damp. They might run the color into the other ones. All right, and we're gonna cut there. Oh, and they're gone anyways. <laughs> that was the thing. Oh, We're hanging up on you guys. You kept us too long. We got to pee. Okay, you know what? I, I, I'm i sorry. I got to say, now that they're not here, I can be a little more crass. I got freaking wood from that. Dude, I am sold. Oh, I'm freaking sold. I, I have, no, the, the, seriously, seriously. I, I devoted 3,000 words of ranting to everything that's been wrong with MMOs, and these guys have seemed to address every single one of those concerns. I want to hug them. Yeah. Okay. Well, make sure you take care of your situation there first. Yeah. Well, okay, we're taking a break here because seriously, I actually have to pee really, really bad. Whew. Man. So good. You know so that good. kind of orgasmic pee that you have when you've been holding it in for a half hour and you've had like a couple of margaritas and a half a bottle of wine yes vince are you there oh yes i'm here (laughs) it's very quiet i said a few things you're just really good at ignoring me you jerk i am (laughs) once again you're filling a role (laughs) expect the same treatment but i would actually not pick this up on 360 there's no way in hell i picked this up on 360 because i know it would be a port you mean pc i did i say pc what did i say you said you definitely weren't getting it on 360 ah damn it you knew what i meant anyways i I, I did know (laughs) what you mean but you know i just want to be absolutely sure all right everybody understood again you know two margaritas and damn near a bottle of wine like oh dude when they were talking about the healing Joe and I were <laughs> messaging back and forth on AIM. And it was like, uh, dude, I'm freaking hard. I'm, honestly, this is this is too much. This is too much. Are you kidding? They've completely reinventing healing. And when he started talking about the Ocarina Chime <laughs> boomerang effect, I'm going, oh my God. Are like you- I said in the chat room, you, you heard them hit are each you- of our third happy place God, right there are you kidding me that's absolutely insane insane 
Yeah, and it, it, it's hilarious. Uh, you're going to see this when you go back and do the editing. The instant that he talked about the collision and how you can line up your lancers, <laughs> you will you will hear all three of us giggle like little girls at the exact same instant. I'm on my way, on my way, and stopping me.